We are the royal family of God assembled in obedience to our Lord's command to partake of the Lord's Supper, also known as Communion and the Eucharist. If you'll take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24. We have the Apostle Paul who's giving information and details with regards to the ritual that we are going to partake of this morning. And he is actually not happy with the Corinthian believers. They were not giving proper reverence and respect to the Lord's Supper. And he starts to address this in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. They were eating. They didn't care if someone next to them was hungry. Maybe you've seen tables like that, maybe at times even in your own home, where it's just who can eat the most the fastest. And they were drunk, totally disrespecting such a solemn occasion. In verse 22, he says, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? This I will not praise you, for I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because it's interesting that the Lord chose Paul to give these instructions. He was an apostle that was not even there. And that's what he's saying. I'm going, he got these facts from the Lord himself. And he's saying that which I, uh, that which I also uh, received, I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup of the cup also and after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this i want you to underline that do this because this is the Greek word poieo, P-O-I-E-O, and it's a present active imperative. It means to keep on doing this. So to keep on doing this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have the details as to how this was conducted. What Paul was describing is sometimes called the, the Last Supper. It actually took place in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. You've seen maybe the famous painting that is called the Last Supper. But actually, this was the Lord's... It was the First Supper with regards to our Lord, uh, starting what we will observe today. You see, we look back at what happened on the cross. That's what we're doing, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And the Passover looked forward, anticipating what was going to take place. Up until that time, for about 1,500 years, the Jews observed the Passover, and that was a representation looking forward to the cross. 
But now the true Lamb of God, the reality was there before them. And from that point on, we look back at the cross. If you'll turn in your Bible to John chapter 6, verse 47. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you that we have two elements before us. We have the bread and we have the cup. The bread speaks of Christ's humanity, His body. And the cup speaks of His atoning work on the cross for us. And in John chapter 6, verse 47, we have something about the bread. Now, this is unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible speaks of sin. Jesus Christ was perfect, sinless. So, we have in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. No doubt when he said this is the bread of heaven, he was pointing to himself. This is the bread of heaven. He was, he was talking about his body that was going to be sacrificed on the cross. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven... If anyone eats of this bread, what does it mean, eating of this bread? Well, we see in verse 47, in verse 48, that I am the bread of life. And in verse 47, he who believes in me. So we have the high honor when we partake of this bread, this unleavened bread, in a public fashion, we are declaring that we are trusting in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation. And then it goes on to say, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, that means believing in Christ, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus Christ voluntarily went to the cross. He voluntarily stepped out of the glory of heaven to become a man, the God-man, the unique one of the universe. Now, to become a man means that he had become lower than another creature. He had already counted countless angels. And at the time being, we are lesser creatures than angels. And so here you have God, the Son of God, taking on a farm lesser than the creatures that he had already created, which were angels. And we are lesser than angels right now, but only for right now. Because when we receive our resurrection body, it is going to be a body that is like Jesus Christ's body. And at that time, those fantastic creatures, angels, will recognize that there was a... Uh, the the butterfly has come out of the cocoon. We'll have a wonderful body at that time that will never die, never experience death. So that is the element we have is the unleavened bread. And when you partake of that, you're testifying openly that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, the cup represents the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The first hint of a sacrifice in the Bible of a Savior, in fact, is in Genesis chapter 3.15. So if you'll turn there. By the way, I had all this on PowerPoint, so you wouldn't have to turn to your Bible. And what I was looking at beforehand, it disappeared. <laughs> Aren't you glad we still have Bibles? In Genesis 3.15, I'm just going to break right into the middle of the verse, pick it up where it says, He shall bruise you on the head. Now the he here 
is Christ. You can just, just mark in your Bibles, if you don't have that marked already, who this is referring to and what it's talking about. He, Christ, shall bruise you, and that would be Satan, on the head. And that refers to ultimate defeat and eternity in the lake of fire. So it goes on to say, And you, that would be Satan, shall bruise him, that would be Christ, on the heel. And that refers to Christ's death on the cross. So here we have the first mention of what the cup represents in the Bible. And that is Satan bruising Christ on the heel referring to the cross. You know, if you get a wound in the heel, you're going to live. If you get a wound on the head, it actually means to crush the head, you're toast. And so, why is the cross referred to as just a bruise on the heel? Well, how about resurrection? See, Christ rose from the dead. So that's the first hint of what we are going to partake of with regards to the cup. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3, 21. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now you'll remember this is after Adam and the woman who was named Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. They died spiritually. And they noticed that they were naked. They'd always been naked. But after they ate... They were ashamed of it, and so they do something really smart. They go get fig leaves, and they're going to cover themselves, and they're going to hide from God. Now, that's real smart. That's what we do when we're in carnality, isn't it? We do some pretty silly things. And so uh, you know the account when God came, and he said, he asked, um, he started uh, with, with Satan, and then he went to Eve, and he says, okay, Eve, uh, what's, what's the deal? What happened? And she said, well, it's the serpent. The serpent gave me an idea to eat. Operation passed the buck. Then he asked Adam, well, how about you? What do you have to say? Well, it's the woman. You know, the woman that you gave me. Gave him the fruit and I did eat. It was after that, and they had made a total mess of things, that God, again, demonstrates his grace and his love by having what is... Actually, a sacrifice. All this fig business was ridiculous. So he took two animals, and these animals had to die so that they could cover the nakedness of these uh, two people who had been uh, disobedient to God. Now turn to Genesis 6.14. This is somewhat obscure in the English. And it's Genesis 6, of course, is talking about the flood. And here we're going to have mention of the ark. And we have something, uh, especially a word that you'll see is interesting. Here we have God speaking. Say, make for yourself an ark. He's talking to Noah. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now I want you to underline or circle that word pitch. In the Hebrew, that word is kafer, K-O-F-E-R. And the definition is to cover over, ransom price, or atonement. So what this is saying to us by this Hebrew word is that eight people in the ark would not have been paid, pay, uh, wouldn't it, would not have been saved if the pitch or that atonement covering the ark 
was not put into place. And we could go on and on with other illustrations of these things that spoke of Christ's atonement. But now when we take up, partake of this cup, we're speaking of not these, but the one and only, the unique atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the Bible it speaks of that atoning work as the blood of Christ. It's interesting in Joshua, where we'll be going in a, in a bit, Joshua chapter 3, that we have even there two things that are very significant with regards to the atoning work of Christ. One of them is the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll go into detail in a, in a bit, which spoke of the work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And also in Joshua, we have Rahab the harlot that dropped down a rope. But you'll remember it was a particular color. It was a red rope. And we're going to see with the Ark of the Covenant had something to do with scarlet or red because when the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur would go in once a year and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So we have the color red there. He's referring to the blood of Christ, his work on the cross. And we have the, the rope also has something to do with salvation. Those who were in that house with the red rope hanging down were going to be delivered. They were going to be saved. When the Israelites were in Egypt, what were they to put over their doorposts and lintel? Blood, it also is red. So there's much to think about as we partake of these elements. Now, you don't have to be a member of this church in order to partake of this Lord's Supper because you are already a member of the body of Christ, the church universal, all believers. Also, I want to remind you that we are to observe this in a reverent manner and I'm even going to say this because it ties in with what we're studying in Joshua chapter 3. In a few moments, we're going to have a moment of silent prayer. And it's a time to consecrate yourself. Remember we had that last week? Consecrate. The Jews were about to cross a, an impassable river. And right before they do, did that, God was going to create... God was going to provide a, a, a miracle for them, but before he did, he wanted them to consecrate themselves. And that means to stop what you normally do in your daily activity. And now it's time for you to concentrate and focus on the Lord himself. And so that's what we are about to do. In this same chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, there was a penalty for those who did not take what Paul was saying seriously. They continued to take the communion with an irreverent manner. Some of, them, some of them became ill. Some of them became very ill. Some of them even died. It's, in some ways, it's a test. The short time that we're dispensing these elements is a time for you to concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ without any interruptions, totally focused. Now, we are the corporate body. We are here all doing the same thing, but you do it individually. As these things are being passed out, you think of Jesus Christ being the only, the one and only solution to our sin problem. Furthermore, when you think of the cup and His work on the cross, you should have an attitude of thanksgiving. But furthermore, you should also think about how blessed you are. Focus on the Lord and you're going to be doing what is required as we partake of it. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to focus our full attention upon the singular person and the singular event that enables us to spend eternity in heaven with our Lord. Help us to have that attitude of gratitude. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. He was chastised for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripe we are healed. The day before our Lord was to be crucified, He took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it, and said, This is my body that is given for you. Take and eat thereof. Again, Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity that we can focus upon the great atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that we will have that sense of great gratitude and that it will be inspiring to us as we continue to fulfill His plan in our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And He, God the Father, has laid upon Him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrated His love to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. On that same occasion, our Lord took the cup and said, This is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. We will stand and sing hymn number 258. We'll sing it softly on the third verse and crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. Seated. And turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Yeshua. Joshua. What a name. In chapter 3, we have Joshua getting the news from the spies that he had sent to go over and spy out the land. They came back with a good report that they were melted in their souls, which was a fulfillment of God's prophecy. The time was right. And that's where we start in verse 1. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall... Set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits, which is about a half a mile, by measure, and do not come near it, if you may, that you may know the way in which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went ahead of the people. That's as far as we're going to go for right now. In verse 1, we have Joshua taking over control of the people for the first time. Moses had died. And now Joshua had the responsibility of about 2 million people. And the Lord told him in verse 2 to cross the river. There was a slight problem. The river was overflowing at that time. Some estimate it could have been as much as a mile wide. Treacherous currents. It was impassable. And yet here is Joshua's first task. 
He is the authority over the people now under God. And he has to go, move them to the river. He knows he needs to do that. Don't, don't you think that Joshua was, was hoping for a little bit less difficult task? Here, he's, he's on the spot. His first command, move out, go to the river. And it's impassable. And there's, a, there's something for us that we don't want to miss right here. And that is that Joshua, even though he was the highest authority in Israel of his day at that time, he had to trust the Lord. It doesn't matter what your station is in life. It doesn't matter if you're a husband that's the head of the house. It doesn't matter if you have a business and you're head of that business. It doesn't matter if you are a, a, a principal in a school district, a coach, athletic director. It doesn't matter if you're a mayor, if you're a congressman, if you're a senator, if you're the president of the United States. It does not matter. If you're going to do your job and do it right and do it well, you have to trust the Lord. But even if you're going the other direction, you also have to trust the Lord in order to be a good follower. To be a good leader, you have to trust the Lord. To be a good follower, you have to trust the Lord. Remember, this was a general statement that God gave to Joshua. Cross the river. He didn't tell him how he was going to do it. He didn't tell him that you need to go and spy out the land. Make sure that the enemy isn't massing troops on the other side. Joshua did everything that he could do up to a point. And then what did Joshua have to do? He had to trust the Lord. And that's what it's like in life. We know generalities that God has given. I gave you the illustration. God has given the instructions that the husband is the head of the house. And that's, that's fine. That's good. But husbands and fathers, there are a thousand different details that you have to handle. The Lord doesn't tell you how to do it. There's a time to be firm. There's a time to be flexible. There's a time for everything, every purpose under heaven, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So, we have to do, what do you do when the Lord tells you to do something? You know the direction you're supposed to go, but you really don't know the details and how to accomplish it. Do you remember what you do? What's the first thing you do every time? I want to hear it. Pray. Pray. Say it again. Pray. Pray, right? You need to talk to the Lord. You've got a problem. He told Joshua, cross the river. He tells husbands, be the head of your house. Love your wives. Be responsible. These Fathers and husbands that complain, well, my house is a mess. Well, the Lord holds the husband, the father, responsible for that. But what is he to do? First thing he does is pray. What's the second thing? Go to the Scriptures. What does God have to say about it? You analyze the situation. What, what, do you, what are you really working with? And go to other people, people that are doing it right, or at least it appears to be, and get information from them. You do everything you can... And then what do you have to do? You have to move out. You have to pull the trigger. If your house is not in order and God is holding you responsible, husbands, for it, then you have to set out a plan on what the changes are, are going to be after you've prayed, after you've gone through the Scriptures, after you've talked to other people, people who are wise in doctrine and are doing it right. You can plan all day, but there's a day that you have to start implementing the changes. And there was a time for Joshua. There was a time to move two million people away from Shittim, seven miles away to the river. And they're standing there looking at this raging river. And they're looking up at Joshua. And they're looking back at the river. And they're thinking, he's in charge? And we're going to cross this? You see the situation that Joshua was in. So this is a real challenge for us is to recognize that we too, it doesn't matter how old you are. You know, sometimes younger people think that adults have it all together. You know, parents try to instill that in their children. There's nothing wrong with that. 
the children need to trust their parents. But as the children get older and they become adults and they have children of their own, they become parents, they find themselves in the same situation that their parents were in. They do the best you can, but you still have to trust the Lord. And all the things that will come up, things happen all the time that you didn't plan on, and what do you have to do? That same thing. Pray. Search the Scriptures. Analyze the situation. Talk to people. And then do it. There's a lot here that uh, doesn't meet the eye at first glance. Now, we're talking about the ark. The ark was to go before the people. The ark was actually symbolic of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Here's a representation of it. The ark was made of acacia wood and it was covered with gold. That spoke of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, the unique one. We call that the hypostatic union. Furthermore, on top you had what is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is that uh, top of it, that this portion right here, and it was made of pure gold. You have cherubim, two of them, one on each end, looking down on the mercy seat. Now, what was inside the ark? We went to Hebrews last time, remember? It was the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and also a jar of manna. And we went into detail. While all of those are representations of sin. So, you have sin inside of here. Christ took our sins upon himself in the, on the cross. And once a year, the high priest would go in and he would make a sacrifice, an innocent animal. He would sprinkle the blood on this. And symbolically, what we have is these two cherubim, the cherubs would look down on the blood and that would propitiate or satisfy God, it would cover the sins of the people for another year. Every year they had to do this. This would represent the justice of God and the righteousness of God. This is all symbolic of what was, what was going to go before the people when they crossed the river. So they were to stay a distance away. Distance away from the ark. Now, why is that? About a half a mile. God was about to do something phenomenal. And he wanted to make sure that everybody was going to see it. Furthermore, he didn't want anyone to think, well, I couldn't actually see what was going on. could be that someone got down there and did a little hocus-pocus, did a little hand jive or something, and the, and the waters were going to separate. That's not what was going to happen. They had to stay far enough away so that they could get a good look. And the ark was going to go before. Isn't that what Jesus Christ does for us? He goes before us. Doesn't he fight our battles? And this was a picture of what was going to happen. The, the whole story here, well, we'll see it in the, in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Look at the end of verse 4. Do not come near it that you may know, underline know, this comes very much, uh, is used quite a bit here, to know something. God wants us to know something. That you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, this is somewhat puzzling, because why would they need to have the ark in order to know the way to go? I mean, if the river is right here, there's only one way to go if you're going to cross it, right? And that's this way. You cross the river. So why would he say, keep your eye on it so that you would know the way to go? Because you've never crossed this way before. Well, they've crossed rivers before, but they've never crossed a river like this because this river was impassable. You couldn't cross over it. And he's not talking about the way. You know, you give somebody directions and they say, what's the, what's the way to so-and-so? And they're talking about physical directions. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about physical directions. It's talking about manner. The way that you are to cross. This one, they're not going to be able to cross by their skill or their deeds. They're going to have to cross this one by faith. 
They can't cross it on their own. They have to depend upon the Lord. And that's what he wants them to know. You remember what happened to Peter when Christ was walking on the water and Peter got out of the boat? What happened? He was walking on the water as long as he did what? He kept his eyes on Christ. The minute he got his eyes off of Christ and on the water, what happened? (laughs) He started to fall. Same thing here. The ark is representing Christ. And they, there had to be a lot of space. Because you get two million people, you could just completely overshadow this ark easily. So they had to keep far enough away. When they were looking at the ark, it was the same as looking at Christ. They were focusing on the solution, which is Jesus Christ, and not the problem, which was the water. That was why they were going. And when he said, you've never crossed this way before, that's what he's talking about. You've never crossed a river like this. Now, you've crossed some rivers, but you never had to cross a river totally by faith. And so that's another illustration for us. You know, you can't concentrate on the problem and the solution at the same time. I've tried it. I can't do it. You're either going to think about the solution, which is Jesus Christ. We call it faith rest. We're going to rest in God's provision. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never fails us. And so that's what we are going to rely on. Or, if you want to, God says, you want to focus on the problem? There it is. It will eat your lunch. It will consume you if that's what you want to focus on. So he's teaching the people, you need to focus on that ark. Remember we talked about the Shekinah glory last Sunday? Remember what the Shekinah glory was? That was the physical representation of Jesus Christ uh, when, the, uh, when he came down. It was the glory. We, we, we went over that. They needed to focus on Jesus Christ just like we need to focus on him. Not on just the big problems. What about the little problems? Every day you need to focus. Keep your eyes on the Lord. So now verse Verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So we have here the word that we used during communion that I was showing you that I think is very important. Remember last Sunday I told you before football games, we used to suit up, we would be in the dressing room, and it would be about maybe a half hour before the game. And normally, guys, you get, I don't know, maybe 40 guys, whatever it was, together. Young guys, and they're, hey, man, what's happening? And, you know, you, you're just jiving and everything. And you just razzing one another thing. But we had a coach that knew how to prepare us for a game. And 30 minutes before the game, we were all suited up. And we were in there, and we were actually consecrating ourselves. We were focusing. It was serious. It was awesome. We were about to go out on the battlefield. We were about to go out and display before everyone what our medal was. And so we would be quiet and we would focus. That's what this word is talking about. And so the reason he wanted to do that is because God was going to do a mighty work and he wanted them to be alert, be awake, see what's going on. Now verse 6. And Joshua spoke to the priest saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. So in, in verse 6, you know, we, when you just slow down and start looking at something, you start finding things that you, you, did, you didn't see before. Uh, in verse 6, what we have is, look at this, And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross ahead of the people. We're always recognizing that the Lord goes before us. They took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Verse 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Underline the word know again there. He wanted them to know that that the people could trust him. Now he wants them to know something about Joshua. Over there in the first chapter... The Lord had already said that he was going to have Joshua as the replacement for Moses. And the people said, that's fine. We'll follow you wherever you go. Only we want to make sure that the Lord is with you. What this verse is saying is he's going to exalt 
Joshua that day to demonstrate that indeed God is with him just as much as he was with Moses. Why were they going to need that? Because when they crossed the river, what was on the other side? Pagans. Hundreds of thousands of them that were uh, so debased and decadent. And God said, you're going to need to wipe them out. And they had to have a leader they could trust. One reason that this obstacle was put there and it was impassable, it had to be huge so the people could say, okay, Joshua led us here. He trusted the Lord. The Lord delivered him. If the Lord can deliver us through this river that's impossible to pass, then we can trust the Lord to take care of those pagans on the other side of the river. That's what was necessary to happen. And so, in verse 8, you shall, more, you shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the ark of the covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So you have the priests that are carrying the ark, they carry it on poles, they're going to go out in front of the people. There's going to be a half a mile in between the ark and all the people as they cross. And so everybody can see what's going on. And they're going to carry the ark on their shoulders and they get to the edge of the water. And what does it say? And you should stand still in the Jordan. This is expanded. Look at verse 13. This is telling them what to do. Now look at verse 13. We'll skip for just a moment here. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. Notice the detail. So Joshua, it's all going to be on the line. He he moved the people there. He had been consecrating himself. All the people have. He did what the Lord said, and now he says when the, when the priests get to the point to where they get to the water and they touch the water, the soles of their feet touch the water, wham, it's going to happen. The waters are going to just recede. They're going to disappear, and you're going to walk across on dry ground. What if nothing happened? You think I ever entered Joshua's mind? I mean, it's one thing to be embarrassed, but be embarrassed like this in front of two million people. You brought them there. You said it was the Lord's direction. You're only doing what the Lord said. But Joshua had to follow through to the, to the very detail of how it was going to go down. So in verse uh, 8, The waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. So he's going to tell the people about this in verse 10. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. By this. What is he talking about? This. By the miracle that is going to take place that he is going to provide for the people, you're going to know that the living God is among you. Underline that part. That's what we all need to remember. The living God is among you or with you. Why is it calling the living God? Because on the other side of the river, there's all kind of, of gods. Uh, tons of God on the other side, idols and so forth. But there's only one living God, and that is Jesus Christ in this case. And so he says that you will know that the... You shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess... Before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Parasite. Parasite, not Parasite. They were Parasites, though. And the Gergesite, and the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Now, in this verse, I'm getting close. The time is nearly gone. But I don't want to stop till you get this point. Uh, where's Mary? Mary, you can get your uh, staff. You may go and uh, start getting prepared. And the rest of you, Focus. And not on food either. We'll get that soon enough. So what is he saying in verse 10? What is he telling the people? He's saying, you will know by this that the living God is with you. 
Because you're going to need this when you get to the other side of the river. You're going to need to have something. When you go up, come up, the first town they come to is Jericho. It's got the high walls and everything. And he's, he's, what he's saying is, you will know by what I'm going to do. I'm going to exalt your leader, Joshua, and I'm going to do something that you will trust me that you can go on and conquer the people. You see, this is the principle here. Victory is built upon victory. They were about to have a huge spiritual victory, and this would be the momentum that they would need to cross the river and take the people just as God commanded. But they had to know something. What did they have to know? That the living God was with them. You ever doubt that? Have you ever faced issues and problems that seemed to loom so large that you forgot? The Lord is with you. Do you remember Isaiah 41.10? Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So fear not, don't be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. It doesn't matter how small it may be or how big it is, the Lord is always there. And He goes before you just like the ark representing Christ, goes before the people. And you can trust Him. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never desert you. Spiritual victories give momentum for more spiritual victories. The problem is, there's so many believers that never even had a spiritual victory. They don't know what it's like. To be in a crossing river situation and totally trust the Lord and be relaxed. They don't know what it's like for the Lord to do, do battle for them. And if they don't have that, how are they going to have a, a, a foundation, a basis to have another victory and another victory? I was fortunate when I was in high school and even a little bit in college that I was on winning teams. We expected to win. We started out winning, and we won and won and won. I think we lost one game uh, when I was a senior. Uh, and I, it's not that the point, it's not, I'm not telling you, I'm not trying to brag about our football teams. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. But what I'm trying to show you is once you start winning, you think like a winner. It didn't even enter our minds that we were going to lose. It wasn't arrogance. It was confidence. We had won before. If we could beat, um, I don't know, uh, Lamar, Lamar had a big, strong team. If we can beat Lamar, then probably we could, we could beat Milby. And if we could beat Milby, uh, maybe we could uh, beat Reagan. If we beat Reagan, which we did beat Reagan. <laughs> That's a little side thing there. Um, we, we expected to win. And we should have that same expectation in our own souls. But it's not based on who we are. And it's not just based on who God is. It's based on our experience, how God has come through for us before. You have a basis there. Now, if you're here and you think, I don't know what you're talking about, then it's time for you to have a spiritual victory. How do you have a spiritual victory? Where's a good place to start? Pray. Where's another place to go? Look at the Scriptures. Talk to other believers. And then pull the trigger. Start making changes in your life. It is wonderful not to worry about your circumstances. That's where God wants us to get. He wants to give us so much grace. He wants to give us so, much, so many blessings that we are no longer controlled by our circumstances. He didn't design us to be, circum, uh, be uh, controlled by our circumstances. People come up to you and say, how's your day today? You know what your answer should be every day? Great. Well, what if the transmission fell out of your car on the way here? And you just got to note that you, you, know, you, you, you contracted some kind of disease or something. Somebody comes up to you and they say, how are you doing today? What do most people say? Well, I'm not doing so good. I have this, 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 and this. And you all have lists, don't you? Don't you all have lists of why your day might not be so good? 
But for the believer, it doesn't matter because our contentment, our courage, our confidence, all the things that we want are not based on our circumstances. It's based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we have spiritual victories, we can, in our mind, go back, oh yeah, I remember how He pulled me through this one. I saw what He did here. Now I can trust Him here. That's what this verse is about. I've gone long again. But that's okay. What we do here is more important than anything else you're going to be doing. So, I want everyone to please bow your head and close your eyes. The last portion of this service is going to be directed towards those who don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know about spiritual victories. They may be afraid of what's going to happen to them after they die. They don't know what's going to happen. If you're one of those people, the good news is you don't have to worry. Sin problem has been taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And He rose on the third day. And now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. If you want to have that peace that passes understanding, the contentment, to be content no matter what happens in the good times and in the bad. The first thing you need to do is recognize that you're a sinner on your way to hell and you need the free gift of eternal life that's given by Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You can do it right now. You don't have to say anything. The Lord knows what you're thinking right at this moment. And the moment that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone, in His work, you're born again. It's called regenerated. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Now, Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us to focus upon Your Word and to be able to have the high honor to observe the Lord's Supper. We pray that it will be a motivating, inspiring force in our lives that we won't be afraid and dread what's ahead because you never leave us, you never forsake us, and you never fail us. We pray that you will help us to meditate upon these things for we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.